Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. That is Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2. I am your host, Sandra Flack. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you got to listen to our June episodes featuring foster and adoptive dads. If not, I invite you to check them out. It's always great to hear from dads who are on this journey. Before we get to today's amazing guest, though, if you're not yet a subscriber to this podcast, I would sincerely appreciate it if you would take just a moment to subscribe, even leave a review. It's super simple to do, and it has a huge impact. When listeners subscribe, it signals to the algorithm that this show is relevant, it's important, and we want all adoptive, foster, and kinship caregivers to find this show because we believe it's a vital resource for their parenting journey. I know that it is a resource I wish I had way back when I started parenting over 20 years ago, uh, adoption, adoptive parenting and kinship care. So um, we know it's a great resource. So I hope that you will take a moment to subscribe. Also, if you find this show to be an encouragement, we would love to know. If you have a comment, a question, uh, you just want to reach out and connect, you can do that by email. You can email me directly uh, at my email address is Sandra Flack, J-F-O at gmail.com. Or you can go right to our ministry website, which is brand new, um, beautiful new website that we have that over the past several years, we needed to update the website to be more um, reflective of who we are as we've grown in the past 10 years as, as an organization. The last time the website was updated was about three to five years ago. So we really needed an updated website. So I hope you'll just go check it out and see the beautiful work that my colleague, Kathy Seawalk, did to create such a beautiful website for us. But you can also reach out to me um, from the website and you can access our FASD and trauma training resources and lots of other things there. Um, so the website is justicefororphansny.org. And there is always a link to the website um, in the show notes to uh, our podcast. So make sure you check that out. And stay tuned to the end of this episode as I have some exciting announcements that I would love to share with you. Now to our guest, Susan Ellsworth. Susan is founder and executive director of Indiana Alliance on Prenatal Substance Exposure. She has a BA in business management from Anderson University and an AS in criminal justice correct corrections from Bell State University. Susan was a licensed foster parent from 2002 to 2014 and mentors both foster and adoptive parents. A mother 
of 13 children. She's got me beat. I always thought I had a lot with 11. She's got 13 children. She and her husband, Dwayne, adopted nine children through foster care. Five of them have FASD, one with celiac disease, and three with RAD, Reactive Attachment Disorder. Susan is also the FASD United Affiliate Director. FASD United is the national voice on fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and supports families living with FASD and is very involved in prevention, um, preventing prenatal exposure to alcohol and other substances that are harmful to human development. So we've got a whole lot to unpack. I'm super excited to have Susan Ellsworth with us today. Oh, hey, Susan. Are you doing, Sandra? I am doing great. I'm thrilled to have you here on the show. Uh, I know you're a busy lady. I, I read your bio, 13 kids, uh, and you're doing amazing work in the FASD community as well. And I, But I would love to start at the very beginning of uh, your adoption and foster care journey. So what led you and your husband, Dwayne, to become foster parents back in 2002? I was one of those, I was born in 1960, and that was an era where um, people minded their own business. So um, I was one of those kids that should have been a foster kid. I grew up in a home that had um, abuse and neglect and domestic violence, uh, and nobody interceded because back in that time period, you just didn't. That was somebody else's home and somebody else's kiddo. So. Um, when I grew up, I think I'm still growing up, but when I became an adult and really started dealing with the trauma in my own life that that abuse had created and the scars that it left, I started getting some healing. I always had a heart for the underdog or for the voiceless. I mean, I think I was really thinking about the younger me and what I would have needed growing up. And that was a magnetic Cool uh, for me, for that community, as well as uh, there were friends of ours that we respected and hang out with and lived life in church. And they were also foster parents and they had been doing it for, you know, 25 years. And we watched the kids come in and out and, you know, would take them for lunch or hang out with them. And so we really felt the pull in that area. It became kind of solidified because we had plans to move to New Orleans and live right there in the French Quarter doing um, street level ministry, relationship ministry. And we were not able to move. And so it was like, okay, God, we're, we're not being able to go to New Orleans. What, what's on the plate for us? And then he really kind of confirmed that this was the next step for us. And that was how our how we got started in foster care in 2002. Wow. So how many years altogether did you foster? 12 years. Wow. We fostered 12 years. And lots of children came in and out during that time and you adopted nine of them. Yes. So tell us, uh, tell us about that. Can you kind of give us a little bit of a synopsis of, you know, kids came in, you adopted them, siblings. What, what did that look like? Um, when we became foster parents, um, that was back when the Indiana foster care system really didn't want foster parents to become attached to their kids. In fact, they had a really hard line. 
it was like, if you're interested in adoption, you can't be a foster parent because you get attached and then you won't let them go and blah, blah, blah. And then uh, my husband and I got married in 2000 and we blended our families at the time. And so we started thinking about, would we ever want to um, parent a child together? Um, and so we started looking at adoption for us and um, and that kind of became solidified once we started fostering because um, we, you never know whether you're really able or ready or, or it sounds like a really good idea but what this would look like until you're doing it. And once we were foster parents, we're like, okay, we're still young enough. We think we could probably handle this and smarter now than we were when we raised our biological kiddos. And so we um, couldn't adopt our fosters. And then we started seeking adoption. We adopted our son Jackson from the state of Oregon. And then about then the lights turned on in the foster system. They're like, you know, if these children are already in a home and they're doing well and they're bonded and they're loved, and they, why would we want to break that up once their rights became terminated? And so that's kind of how our adoption of our foster kids started is as their rights started to be terminated, um, we hung on to and kept the kids that we built relationships with. Um, I was a trainer for the state of Indiana, trained foster parents to get their license and adopted parents to get their license. And I kept seeing this um, eagerness of families to want to jump in and build, like we're going to build our family, but it was almost a rescue kind of thing, the mentality of rescuing. And you would try to tell them about the challenges and they would smile and nod like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, like, but we're going to nurture and we're going to provide consistency and we're going to be there and that's not going to happen in our homes. And so in our particular area of the state, we were seeing about a 25% adoption disruption rate once those cute little bundles of joy grew up to be preteens and teenagers the adoption started falling apart. And so we were going, there's no way we want our kids to go back into the system with a family that thinks that they're going to have Ozzy and Harriet and don't realize that this is going to be a bumpy ride for quite a while. And so it was out of our love, but also um, I think of us protecting them of falling into a situation where an adoptive family has not really come to the understanding that um, this is going to be a journey and they may never appreciate what you've done for them. And, and if they do, they may be adults before they can ever a voice. Thank you for what you did or picking me into your family and making me your own. Wow. So the first one that you adopted, you, you went to Oregon to adopt your son. Right. And then who came next? You don't have to give names if you don't want to, but did you adopt sibling groups? Like, how did you get nine? We um, we had a baby in the home that um, ended up, we adopted him at three years. And then the rest were just kind of like that. They would come and then their rights would be terminated um, and they would stay. We have uh, two sibling groups. We have a set of twins that came into care when they were five months old and they were in a different foster home. We found out about them 
and they came to live with us when they were 17 months old. And then our youngest two are half siblings. And so they have the same, of course, the same mother, uh, but different dads. And the rest are non-related. So it, it, it's quite the crew from um, changes in appearances and skin color and uh, um, neuro-wise too. I mean, um, out of our kiddos, we have five that have been diagnosed with prenatal alcohol exposure. And then one of our kiddos was cocaine exposed. And so we have that on top of just the trauma of coming through the childcare system and um, them trying to resolve. Most of them have zero memories of their birth families or what that was like. And um, so it gets really complex, you know? Yeah, I can imagine. So how many kids are home right now and what are the age range, what's the age range youngest to oldest? We have six um, that are still at home. Our oldest is 20, and he is uh, finding his way, so to speak. He's working in construction, picking up all kinds of wonderful uh, skills that will do well for him personally, whether he stays in construction or not. Then we have our two 16-year-olds, and um, they have prenatal alcohol exposure. And even though they're twins, it affects them completely differently. Uh, our oldest mm. uh, one is more of a sensory integration and attention issue, maybe being overstimulated a little bit with sound and lights and so forth. And then his, his brother is just 30 uh, minutes younger, but he, he got the more severe effects with the impaired mm. um, prefrontal cortex and challenges with connecting uh, consequences and choices and impulsivity and self-regulation and all those things that you signed up for as a Austin adopted parent. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> we have a 13 year old and he is, um, he is very, very interesting. He also has prenatal alcohol exposure, but he has autism too. So it, the autism manifests itself differently with um, other neurotypical individuals who have autism. And then we have a 12-year-old daughter who's getting ready to go into the teenage years. And I have my seatbelt on my chair at all times for her. Um, and then our youngest is 10. And he is neurotypical in all ways. Um, and so, it was so odd after being on special needs alert all those years to have a child. It's like, he has no IEP, he has no 504, it's, there's no extra meetings <laughs> at school. It's like, and how do you raise a quote, end quote, normal kiddo? You know? Yeah. Sounds like you needed a break by then. So, <laughs> okay, okay. Here's how we'll end it. <laughs> yeah, we'll cut you some slack here. Um, you know, pa parenting that many children from foster care, um, of course, nine of them, uh, and, and you've been highlighting, you know, a lot of prenatal exposure to alcohol. Um, you know, what going in uh, as a foster parent, what kind of trauma training uh, did you receive prior to becoming a foster parent? <laughs> 
Were you prepared for this gig or what? <laughs> uh, no. Um, our, I think that um, I think that was what propelled me into training was I wanted other foster parents to be aware of what the journey was really like. Not not to scare them, but just this reality check because you know um, there's a shortage of foster parents everywhere, and so it's kind of like. Be a foster parent. It'll be fun, you know. And then there's the reality of what that's like on a daily basis. And then integrating parenting uh, a child through trauma and dealing with state bureaucracy at the same time just completely changes everything and your, your, and your parenting styles. Um, so we didn't have the much intensive training that was stuff that you picked up really on the job. And then intentionally seeking that training after getting your license and we actually knew we were foster parents for a good six or seven years before we ever even learned about FASD uh, and that was from another foster parent who had a child and she was talking about FASD and you know some of the details and I was like well what is this and she explained it to me and I was like that's my kids that that's what my house looks like and then started kind of exploring really what was it collecting information so then we took our kiddos for um diagnosis and about assessments and then they got diagnosed and then from there it was then you really became serious about the education journey because then it's like okay yeah. now that's not just something that could happen it's something that did happen what do we need to do to better support them equip them and, and ourselves, I think um, I do a lot of training on FASD now. And one of the things that um, I talk about on the intervention side is I think families are looking for that magic answer. Like if I do A, B, and mm -hmm. C, D is going to happen, right? And what I, I share with them, you know, we, we can talk about strategies and we can talk about interventions, but the biggest intervention that we can offer our kiddos is us adapting our expectations, us coming mm, to the realization, right. the conclusion that what we thought our relationship with them was going to be like probably is not going to happen and certainly not going to happen the way that we thought and that we can't be um, comparing them. So I always, I talked about the grieving process of how in your mind you have this picture of what it's going to be like, but your day-to-day -day is different. And parents don't realize that they're grieving. They think of grieving as a death of a child or something really traumatic happening. But I explained to them, if you catch yourself saying it should not take 15 minutes to get everybody in this van and their seatbelts on, you're mm -hmm. comparing what you thought your mm -hmm. life was going to be like to what it really is. And that's also part of that grieving process, but it's just not, we don't see it that way. It's not vocalized. So yeah, that was the biggest, that was the biggest piece for us is just really accepting. And it's one thing to say, oh yeah, I get it. Yeah, I, I, okay, I, I'm changing my expectations. But when you hear yourself interact with your kiddo, you're like, yeah, I really didn't. I still had that. I was still expecting that somehow one day I'd get up and I wouldn't have to remind you 500 times to put your laundry in the laundry hamper. You know. 
Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of that is, you know, we, we have to realize that they're not going to like magically turn 18 and then all of a sudden be all better. Mm-hmm. This is a lifelong, right, disability. And we have to, like you said, adapt our expectations, learn about making accommodations, all those things. But starting off, you didn't know any of that. Right. You know, like you said, you learned about FASD from another foster parent. And I think that's how it is oftentimes, you know, and I remember when my my two boys got diagnosed, uh, they were adopted internationally, but they got the diagnosis of, F- of having FAS. And then it was, but it was like, have a nice day. There were no resources. There was no like, what next? There was no, because there wasn't anything. You know, I live in upstate New York and there wasn't, there wasn't anything. So I focused more on the trauma training mm-hmm. And it took a long time before I started realizing, okay, now, you know, a lot of that works, but there's still something going on here. And then the more I learned about, I started, I said, I got to focus on this FAS thing now, because I feel like that's the missing piece. And boy, is it ever, because that's the, that's the overarching piece, part of everything that we're dealing with. Um, and, and I talk a lot, a lot about it on this podcast too, because I, because if you're a foster parent or an adoptive parent, it's almost a given that you're going to have a a child that was prenatally exposed and you need to know, you need to know the symptoms, you need to know, um, how to adjust to that and adjust the environment so our kids can be successful. Um, so you, your kids got the diagnosis, Mm -hmm. what, um, you know, because sometimes parents don't get it because doctors aren't always really good. They're still relying on, you know, the facial features and things like that. Um, but so you got the diagnosis. Was there a then what for you or do, or was it have a nice day? Here's your diagnosis. It was have a nice day. Um, yeah. For our first three, for our last two that were diagnosed, um, we they were diagnosed at uh, Riley child developmental center it was a clinic at the time that was seeing kids with prenatal alcohol exposure and they did offer Gaia Melbourne's book um, try differently not harder uh, but that was the first time it, it was very much you know here's a diagnosis well let us know if you need anything and we didn't know about any of the waivers we didn't know about any of the supports we yeah. You know, we navigated our way through everything. And, you know, that's, I think, the big reason why I do what I do is not wanting other families to have to fight for that same navigation track um, and make sure that there's somebody around that they can talk to about what their journey has been like. I think one of the other challenges of FASD is that it affects every individual differently. So we have these mm-hmm. generalizations of what general symptoms look like, and we have generalizations for what interventions look like, but on any given day, it could work on every other child or every fourth child, or every fifth child, and then not the rest, or it works on Monday, but not on Tuesday and Wednesday. So mm-hmm. it, it's constantly navigating and it's a trial and error process. And I think that's so hard for so many families because it's very time consuming. It's emotionally consuming. It's energy draining because you're just wanting something that works. Right. And so, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and some families are so desperate to find something that works that 
they they are being manipulated by media and so forth as the next new thing. And then they're all in 100% on this next new, uh, I read this article, and if you give this vitamin, and if you do this, if you do that, you know, and some of that stuff may have some minimal effect, depending on the individual, may have great impact. But right now, I mean, there's no cure for FASD. And I think that's right. really hard for parents are still looking for that, that cure. Yeah, for sure. And again, that goes back to adapting our expectations and the environment for our kids to be successful. How did you, Susan, how did you get FASD equipped? So, you know, you get the diagnosis, you did get a book, you got Diane Melvin's book, which is trying differently rather than harder, which we highly recommend everybody read. Uh, but how did you go about getting FASD equipped? How'd you get the tools? Um, because I was in the position I was in, which was a, a, a unique position of being a trainer and working with the state and advocating so hard for my kids, I had already kind of picked up a label of uh, being a family leader in the state. So I served on a uh, leadership Council for our state to train other family members how to have their voice and how to lead and led me to an opportunity through Riley, uh, what they call the LEN program. And it's a leadership training program where they take different disciplines through um, how to play the same sandbox together, so to speak. You know, you're going to have speech pathologists mm -hmm. and doctors and so forth. And you had to have um, a project. And so I was thinking about this project and they said, oh, yours, it's right in front of you. You need to start a nonprofit for FASD because it, it you know, affects your kids. And I think that's where the official education about FASD started. And before that, it was just reading everything that I could, talking to as many people as I could talk to. But then I went over to the Double Arc in Ohio and was certified in triumph training, which was an evidence-based program for training people about FASD. And then that started the evidence-based training, digging in deep, and which really led to starting the nonprofit. And um, yeah, but it, and and it is like for so many of us, you're you're kind of forging the path. Mm -hmm learning, you know, digging it up and trying to learn it all yourself and then educating others and bringing others along with you because in a lot of states, there just isn't a lot of understanding or awareness about FASD. Um, and so now, like, I know we talked about symptoms a little bit, but just for our listeners who might not really understand fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, can you give some examples of the FASD symptoms that you know, you've experienced that your kids have, have um, presented and how you made accommodations to help them be successful in those areas? Sure. Um, and I think I'll hone in on, on just a couple of them. I think the first one I kind of want to hone in on is um, if you're not familiar that there was prenatal alcohol exposure, it could look like autism in the sense that, um, kids become easily overstimulated with their sensory systems. That can look anything like uh, bright lights, loud sounds, sirens, too many people in the room. But starting thinking about that 
type of experience for them. And, but it felt different. Um, they were just overwhelmed with life. And so not being small children and not having the language and not being able to really themselves understand, it often looked like either A, shut down the freeze or the fight, the, the meltdown, because it wasn't that they were angry. It was that they had all these stimulations and they couldn't make all the stimulations be quiet in their head. They couldn't make sense of all the smells and all the sounds and all the people when you're in my space and you're in my bubble and I don't like it when you touch me and I don't like it when you touch me like that. And how come I have to wear these clothes? All those things that kind of went into it that were kind of our first indicator that there was um, a challenges in paradise. As they got a little bit older, um, we noticed that those kiddos that have uh, challenges to learning. So, uh, and this has to do with short-term memory uh, challenges um, that these are, for our kiddos, it looked like the ones that you were um, repetitively redirecting, uh, reteaching. And, you know, the movie 50 First Dates, it's the movie 50 First Dates every single day. <laughs> going over and in the back of your head, if you're thinking they should know that by now, we just talked about that yesterday, we just talked about that five minutes ago, if that's going off in your head, then you should be asking yourself, is it possible for those prenatal alcohol exposure? Um, but mm -hmm. in our family, what has been, the, I think the most challenging for us as well as our kiddos to manage is that, da that damage to the frontal um, cortex there, that prefrontal cortex, where there's this huge disconnect between the choices that I'm making and the consequences that are going to come. And when we think about all the systems that are set up that kids grow up with, I'm going to tell you what I expect. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen when you don't meet my expectation or the quote consequences that are going to happen. And then when they don't meet the expectation, they get a consequence. And that's all based on the idea that once you get the consequence, you're going to learn. And so when they mm -hmm. repeat that same choice the next time, then the consequence gets more severe. And we're operating on that assumption that once they lose enough, once it gets serious enough, once they go without enough, then they'll get it and they'll quit doing that. But when that prefrontal cortex is damaged, that, that it's not there. And so we're essentially trying to consequence away a symptom of prenatal alcohol exposure, but just it's not going to go away. Um, and the other challenge that has been really um, hard has been the impulsivity. So we all kid about, mm -hmm. oh, I'm kind of like squirrel. Um, but for these kids, <laughs> it's not just squirrel. It's like squirrel on steroids. And no matter mm -hmm. how often they practice, no matter how many times you role play with them, this is what we're going to do. This is how this is going to look. This is what's going to happen. As soon as they're distracted by whatever it is, bright and shiny, a person, whatever, boom, it, it, all that practice is just gone. And they mm -hmm. have an inability to stop themselves and think, oh, no, wait, we've talked about that before we came into the store. I'm, I'm not going to get that treat or that candy or that item. It, it's just not there for them. So the impulsivity they can tell you when they're not being stimulated, 
what's going to happen. But as soon as they're stimulated, that plan is, is out the door. And then the challenges with self-regulation. So these mm -hmm. look like the kiddos that every single thing is a mountain. There are no molehills. They're a hundred percent. If they're hundred percent happy, they're a hundred percent happy. If they're a hundred percent ticked off, look out. And, and then we, you know, uh, people that provide services to our family who are not educated in FASD try to support us in very unhelpful ways. So they will say, well, let's teach them some self-help skills because that's really important. And so we start putting tools in their toolbox. Okay, breathe. When you feel yourself start getting like this, just start breathing or walk away. Or I mean, you, you and I could list a thousand things here that could be potentially a good self-help skill for any of us. But again, in the moment, they cannot self-regulate. So by the time they're stimulated, it's too late. They're already stimulated. And usually they're going to be stimulated to as far as they can go. And then as we're trying to interject to them, use your self-help skills, save it. I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not going to happen. And they have to go through that cycle to be able to reset. And I think that's why it's so important for everybody, whether you're a doctor, foster parent, or whatever, to become informed of what FASD is because you can serve as a reminder and a support system to somebody, a family or an individual who has prenatal alcohol exposure of helping them uh, learn to be comfortable in their skin, but also learn their behavior. I, I see you're clenching your hands. Okay, I noticed mm -hmm. that you're clenching your, your forehead, you're, getting, you're wrinkling your eyebrows. Are you frustrated about something? Oh, your face is turning red. Do we want to take a walk? Do we want to go outside? So that we're trying to stop it before they before it gets that. Um, but there seem to be, or at least in my family, my kiddos seem to be incapable of really bringing that back themselves. Yeah, when you think about when you talk about like you know self regulation skills, uh, they would have to be able to remember them in the moment as well. And, you know, that's not going to happen either. So I, I, see, I, see, I see what you're saying there. So, Susan, if you could pick one of these symptoms that you've, you know, personally dealt with in your family and, you know, what is one of your go-to accommodations? Well, let's talk about, I'll talk about um, my 13-year-old um, who is so easily overstimulated. Now, he, he's at 13 he's doing a little bit better. I will say that, but early on the, um, he would just shut down. He would either shut down or melt down. And so I learned that for him, like if we would go to church, just walking in the door and being so big and so many people and stuff, he would shut down. Now if he has a focal point. Then all the noise in his head quiets down. So for him, that can be drawing, that can be looking at a book that he's interested in. And um, for him, especially, it's electronics. Um, I realize that that's an issue for a lot of people uh, and concerns about them just losing themselves on their iPads. That if he is on his iPad in church, then the rest of the world just kind of fades away and he doesn't feel like he has to 
either. Um, he doesn't get antsy. He doesn't feel like he has to shut down to be able to deal with all that stuff that goes on around him. Hmm. So there's a good, a good to so having, having a plan in place to help self-regulate when things are overstimulating and, and, uh, and like that. So those are good, good examples there of some things that we could do. Um, I know. So you've got six kids at home uh, and you know five of them, right, have FASD. What are your, what are your, what's a typical day look like? Do they all go to school? Um, do you homeschool? Is there like what, it's got to be crazy because I have two still at home, both with FASD and it's crazy. So I can only imagine six would be crazy. So what's a typical day? What do you, how do you get through a day? Well, at home now, um, we, three of our kids at home um, have you know, alcohol exposure to have grown and um, no longer live here. They're old enough. Um, but all of our kids are mainstreamed in school um, and two have IEPs that kind of support them and they have one-on-one paras to help them navigate their day and help with their impulsivity, staying on track and suddenly not getting lost in the school building because they got interested by that bright tiny object. Um, but structure um, is critical. Um, and so we're very structured. We do essentially the same things about the same time every day. Uh, not to say that we don't once in a while be spontaneous, but for the most part, our kids know what to count on because it cuts down on the impulsivity. And um, we've, we're really big on um, fear does not mean everybody gets the same thing. Because that's mm. not fair. Fear is everybody gets what they need. And so we've learned and our kids learned that, you know, this child, this is what their day looks like. And, and this child, this is what their day looks like. And, and what they do when they're off time and how much time somebody has an iPad versus not and TV, etc. cetera. Um, and I think that structure helps move through the day. That being said, the counterpart to all that structure is realizing that the best laid plans usually are flushed in the first five to 20 minutes of the day because whatever <laughs> you plan for, something happens that you can't plan for. And being able to learn on your feet, it's, it's a constant thinking on your feet uh, type of experience. Um, and I think that we limit the a number of activities that our kids are involved with um, because it's just too overstimulating to the family. You can pick one sport or one activity and that's what you focus your time in. And one child's not going from, you know, volleyball to cheerleading to dance to whatever, because that's too crazy uh, for that child, let alone the whole entire family. So um, every day, has um, a certain amount of challenge to it and every day has a lots of opportunity and I think that that's my challenge as a parent is to frame it in terms of an opportunity and being willing to uh, reframe what does it mean to be successful what does it mean to get through the day 
And some of my friends would call me, well, how'd your day go? And I go, well, the kids are all alive and I'm not wearing stripes or orange, so it was a good day. <laughs> and they go, oh, you're so funny. I'd be like, no, serious. Um, <laughs> sometimes yeah. you have those days where if everybody has made it through the day, there's a tomorrow and you just, you know, you plan on, on, on going with the tomorrow. Yeah, So and so your days look you know, life probably looks vastly different than what you would have thought it would have been. You've got a very structured life, um, very structured days. But again, you know, it can be it can all dissolve in minutes because you you can't always plan exactly what's going to happen because with our kids, you just never know what's going to happen. Um, so that makes me go think about and want to go back and talk a little bit about the grief piece, because mm-hmm. I know you and I were chatting before I hit record. And I said, I've come to realize that I have grief that I never thought I used to disregard that because I used to, I'd hear other podcasters, other FASD parents talk about grief. And I'd be like, Oh, that's not me. I don't, I don't have any of that. Uh, And then one day I realized, Oh, this is that when it comes to having a, you know, I can't leave the house unless there's some, a support person or my husband comes home from work uh, just to go see my dad in the nursing home or just to go to the grocery store or just to go, you know, I don't have that flexibility. And, you know, most women my age, I would say our age, um, they're either empty nesters, right? Or they're, they're you know, doing some kind of fabulous thing or they can at least be much more impulsive themselves with, oh, let, let's just go out to dinner or let's just go shopping or let's just go away for the weekend. And our lives don't work that way. You know, so being able to come to terms with this looks a lot different than what I thought it was going to look like. It's not bad. You know, I've, I I love what I get to do, um, but it is definitely different than what I thought and definitely different than my peers out there. What are you, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that? Um, life is definitely different. And I think this is where people, people just don't know what they don't know. So they think they're being helpful. Well, why don't you do this? Well, why don't you do that? Well, why don't you and your husband have a date night one night a week? Or why, you know, and they're throwing all these things out, you know, you're like going, mm-hmm. well, that would be great. And, and so forth. So um, I, I think that, for, that what you're saying is true. Our life is completely different. Um, and I, I kind of feel like maybe because I'm in it that it's harder but I think that that's maybe unfair on my part because um, I don't live a life that somebody else lives. And, and we're all struggling with what we emotions and creativity and problem solving and experience that we have. And so um, that parenting experience for a parent of a neurotypical child may in fact be feel just as hard for them as my job feels for me parenting kids who aren't neurotypical. And um, so you can't, oh, well, was me. Um, I think I didn't really realize the grief process um, for a long time. And I didn't realize how it impacts your own mental health until I was there. And, um, I, and I think that um, I kind of, I'll use this illustration because for me, it's, it's true. 
was I had a pair of glasses and uh, I need glasses to see. And uh, they got a scratch on the lens right in the middle of where you focus. So in the beginning, every time I looked at something, there'd be this line and I'd be like, scratches there. And, and it bothered me. Then over the course of time, my eyes adjusted and um, I would be kind of aware from the scratch or I turned my head a certain way and I wouldn't notice the scratch until it got to the point where I didn't make any known adjustments at all. And I was still using the same pair of glasses and I didn't, it didn't, I didn't think that it impacted me. And then I went to um, get my eyes checked and they're like, wow, you have a scratch right in the middle of where you're focusing. And so I think that we do that as parents that we adjust and we don't really realize the impact that it has on our ability to see things clearly or know what's really happening because we're, um, we've settled or settled is maybe not a great word, but I think that um, we've learned. To we get used to it. Scratch. Yeah. We get, we used, get to used, to used to it. Yeah. Yeah. We just get used to it. And then something happens in our lives. I mean, much more serious than scratch on your glasses that shows you that you are emotionally spent hmm. and yes. you need to go back and hit the stop button. And I would encourage anybody who's listening and anybody who does listen to tell anybody who's not listening that it is okay to hit that stop button. It is okay to say, yes, I'm going to take care of your needs and you're going to be fed and you're going to be clothed and you're going to be safe that I need to take care of me mm-hmm. for a little while and yeah. put things in place that help repair and help build up um, our emotional reserve again. Because if we don't take care of ourselves, we actually have nothing left to give our kids. We, can, right. we come to the point where we're just empty and, 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 yeah. and that's disastrous for everybody. Yeah. And that's that saying, you can't pour from an empty cup, which can sound cliche, but it's true. You know, mm-hmm. and, and we do, we have to take some time for ourselves and it's hard. I, I started, I started sort of combining activities. So, um, my, my dad recently passed, but up until then, and he was in a nursing home, I, it was my responsibility to go cause I, I'm, was a primary caregiver for my dad. I would go every week to visit him and my husband would come home from work early so that I could go see my dad. So then I started, okay, I'm, I'm, Going to see my dad is wonderful, but it's also another way I'm pouring out. So as long as my husband was home with the kids and I was out by myself, which was just driving someplace in a car is self-care in and of itself. (laughs) But I would go, I would go get my nails done. I would go get a pedicure. I would, I would factor in like, okay, is, you know, I'm going to go get my nails done first and then I'm going to go see my dad or vice versa. But I kind of built those two things in um, so that regularly I was doing something for me. Um, and since mm-hmm. I was already out um, doing something that I had to do, I was a- able to, to fit that in. So we have to sometimes just be creative in how we get it in there. But we definitely have to take care of ourselves because if not, you know, when you hit that wall, you'll know it. And then there's nothing left and we need to be there for our family. So it's definitely paying yeah. attention to grief and paying, att- paying attention to 
to self-care and, and taking care of ourselves. Um, and we could do a whole episode on different ways to do that. But I think most people know, you know what you need. You know if you need a walk. You know if you need to drive by yourself. You know if you need to just take a hot bath. You know what you need. Take the time to do it. Um, for sure. So let's switch gears a little bit, Susan, because I really want to talk about the work that you're doing. You you established uh, the Indiana Alliance on Prenatal Substance Exposure. What led, and I kind of have a clue, but what led you to establish that organization? That was my project for my LEND. Um, and back in uh, 2014 was when um, I founded Central Indiana No Fast. And so that was the, the project, getting it started. And then we got our first uh, grant from our uh, Department of Mental Health and Addiction in the state of Indiana in 2015. And from there, it kind of grew from central Indiana to Indiana No Pass. And then we recently rebranded into Indiana Alliance um, just last fall. And we are a statewide organization uh, that does teaching and training on FASD. And we have a social media presence because there's not a lot of money available for FASD prevention programming. And so you leverage your fund and social media has turned out to be a way to leverage the dollars that you have to get the word out and bring awareness to that. We do a every other Friday evening, a virtual online support group. And then we partner with a lot of other state organizations that are trying to improve quality of life families, have a focus toward reducing um, substance exposure, including alcohol exposure, and work with um, high-risk families. And so we, we do that in the state of Indiana. And then we are also, I'm also the director of the FASD United um, Network, affiliate network. And we have um, affiliates like mine in Indiana across the country. And we meet together and we're in an organization, of course, is to meet the needs of the people in the states that we live in. Every state is slightly different, but every state needs FSD education. So everybody's doing training. Most everybody's doing advocacy work. Um, some have pretty uh, sophisticated support groups going, others not. Uh, some of our affiliates have diagnostic clinics, and I would love to be one of those. Um, but we're not, we're not there yet. And so we're looking amongst the affiliate network of um, recognizing that everybody has something different to offer and providing a platform for their differences, but also how do we make our voices louder? And that comes from being together and being stronger. And we're trying to really um, Make sure that if you live in Alaska, the message that you get about FASD is the same message that you would get in Florida. So making sure that the trainings, that the information that we're putting out is accurate, it's non-stigmatizing, it's informative, and that you could go anywhere in the country and hear the same messaging because people who are not familiar with FASD are easily confused and when we're not consistent on our messaging, 
it, it just muddles the, the playing field for them. So in Indiana, we got some um, COVID relief money and two of our new initiatives are we're doing a statewide FASD needs assessment. And that's really super exciting. We're hoping that that needs assessment leads us to uh, having some oomph uh, for policymakers to just make decisions about what we really need in our state to meet the needs of the individuals and their families. And then we also got some money to work, um, we want to put a, a screener on our website so that families that are waiting such a long time to uh, get um, into diagnostic clinics have a stopgap, um, a pre-screener, so to speak, so that um, it helps them get further along on their journey. So those are the two big things that we're working on this year um, in Indiana. I love that. And now, do you have a, a website where our listeners could check out the work of your organization? Yeah. Our website is at um, HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash um, IN, like for Indiana, IN Alliance, A L L I A A F. Sorry. Strike that out. It would be helpful if I could spell. It would certainly make it easier, <laughs> wouldn't it? INA. L-L-I-A-N-C-E-P-S-E. So that's Indiana Alliance. And then the P-S-E is prenatal substance exposure abbreviation.org. And um, that's our website. And if you just search for Indiana Alliance, if you Google that, it, you can, it's pretty easy that way too. And we'll put, we'll put a link to it in our show notes for this podcast episode so that our listeners can find that. And um, you mentioned the FASD United um, affiliates. And I'm proud to share that our organization, Justice for Orphans, JFO, is now an FASD United affiliate here in upstate New York. So we're so honored to be part of that network now. Um, and just bringing that awareness. We know there's been hardly any research. There's fabulous things going on out in the Rochester area. Dr. Christy Petrenko, um, the University of Rochester, they have that clinic out there. Um, and I know there's one, is it, is it Doug Waite down in New York yes, City? Doug Waite. And then everywhere else in the state, there's like nothing. So, and I live in the capital region. So I'm, I'm, I live where the capital city of Albany is. And there is nothing, you know, one, one, we had one developmental pediatrician who did diagnose my two boys, but that was relatively easy because we had history on them. They had, they have the facial features. It was like, you know, you can identify them very easy, but I know other parents who've gone to the same practice with most likely kids. And if they didn't have the facial features or maternal admission of alcohol consumption, they didn't even get the, your kid has this, have a nice day. They get, they got nothing. So um, I would, I would also love to see a clinic in the capital region area. Um, but just bringing that awareness, bringing training to families. Um, that's a big part of what we want to do here too. So um, we'll also include a link to um, FASD United, which is basically FASDunited.org. Um, we'll have both links in the show notes so that, that our listeners can find out more there. Um, so Susan, as, as we wrap up, what words of advice would you offer to our foster and adoptive parents who are listening? They may or may not know that their, their child has an FASD, but what advice would you give them? You, you talked earlier about things that cliche, 
um, and this probably could sound cliche too, but every day is the first day of the rest of your life. And um, it's a new beginning. And so um, just because yesterday was a tough day or something was hard yesterday, um, that was yesterday. And if we don't consciously live in the moment of today, then we are looking back about something that we can't change and it's weighting us down. If we're looking forward, we're missing what's happening right in front of us. And the best place to be is, is in the new beginning of, of right in the moment today, because that's all we can really impact at the time. Um, you know, that sounds backwards for parents who are thinking that they're parenting their kids to adulthood, et cetera. But in the, in the moment, that's where our opportunities are, is right in front of us. And that's, that's, right. that's the new beginning. And I think that's what um, hanging on to that, that breeds hope for me is remembering that um, every day is a new beginning. What did I learn yesterday? What am I going to do different today? And, and how could I make planning for tomorrow um, a better experience? Mm, I love that. And you chose the verse I opened with, Isaiah 43, verse 2. I'll read it again here. It's, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Why did you choose that verse? <laughs> that seems to be my life. My life feels like it's either a typhoon or a tsunami or a volcanic eruption just about all of the time. But, um, you know, God has never abandoned me. And um, he's never left me to do this on my own. And he, um, I think I started with talking about me uh, being a kiddo who needed a foster home. It was not uh, the, it's not the ironicness did not escape me that the woman who um, was going to be a mother to 13 kids didn't have and active, engaged in mother growing up. So I didn't have those skills. I, I couldn't see this unfold. I never got the example of what the successful relationship looks like and suddenly I'm in it, which put me squarely in depending on God for every single breath because I didn't have what it takes. I had to depend on him and I was right where he wanted me to be. Um, because I could learn and I'd be pliable. If I if I walked in with the skill set, I'm probably a little arrogant. I probably I got this, I got this, and I'd have to be knocked on my butt a couple of times. Not that that didn't happen, but um, I needed to depend on him, and and so it was really important for me to know that I was never going to be abandoned, no matter what came, what happened. He was going to be right there, and um, it, it's. It's get my it's the get me through the day thing. Mm, I love that because we we have those hard days and some days are harder than others. Uh, and that's we need the Lord to get us through. So I love that. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah. Susan, thank thank you for sharing your story with us. Um, I know I appreciate um, all that you're doing on behalf of foster and adoptive and FASD 
um, families there in Indiana and, and really across the country, especially with your work with FASD United Affiliates. And I just, I'm grateful for the work that you're doing. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It was an honor. Wow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. I hope you found some encouragement by listening to Susan's story. I know I did. I know she's a wealth of information when it comes to foster care and uh, parenting kids with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. So um, I hope you really enjoyed the conversation that we had. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode uh, to get uh, to be able to get the links to not only Susan's uh, organization in Indiana, Indiana Alliance, but also FASD United. And again, Justice for Orphans is now a very proud affiliate of FASD United. Um, so I hope you check that out. Also wanted to let you know about an FASD 101 training that I am currently offering. Uh, it's an I can do it online or in person. It's a 90-minute training, and it's excellent for parents um, who either know they have children with an FASD or maybe they suspect they have children with an FASD. Uh, you can register for the training now uh, on our website. The JFO website has been all updated, um, and so you can click on resources, and you'll be able to find um, our FASD uh, training. We also offer uh, poverty training for our churches that are doing Care Portal, uh, as well as uh, trauma training for foster and adoptive parents as well. Um, but I'm super excited about this new FASD 101 training that we are offering. So I invite you to go check it out at our website, justicefororphansny.org. We don't currently have a training on the books or on the calendar, I should say. Um, but if you have a, a group of parents who want to do it, like I said, either online or in person, we would love to get one on the calendar for you. Um, and also, we have something uh, special brewing up uh, for the month of September. We got lots of special things brewing up for September because there's the FASD, uh, the run FASD that's coming up. And we're going to be talking a lot more about that. I've got uh, Coach Rebecca Tallou, uh, who's going to be coming on in the next uh, few episodes to talk about um, the, F the Run FASD and, and other things that we have going on in September. Um, I also have a collaboration with another FASD adoptive mama who you may know, um, and we're going to be offering a monthly virtual uh, support group for parents. So, uh, and other things that we're building into a community that we're going to be offering, but we have lots of things coming up and our goal is to start launching them in September. So stay tuned to this podcast to make sure you get to hear more about it. Um, and again, please subscribe to this show. If you are um, a foster and adoptive parent and you found this to be helpful, also please tell your fellow adoptive and foster parenting friends so that they can know about the show as well. Uh, you can check out my family's kinship and Ukrainian adoption journey in my book, Orphans No More, A Journey Back to the Father. It is available wherever you get your books. You can get it on Amazon and the Kindle version um, or the soft cover as well. If you get it there, I would love for you to go back in there and leave a review. If you'd like a signed copy, I would love to sign a copy and pop it in the mail to you personally. I send along a gift, a free gift bookmark. You can go to my website. I have a website, sandraflack.com. 
You can order the book there and I'll send it to you. You can also learn more about me, read my blog, which is for really geared toward foster adoptive and kinship caregivers. And if you're interested in having me come and speak at an event that you're hosting, um, you can you can schedule me for that as well. Um, and I'd like to give a big shout out before we go to our Care Portal County sponsors. Care Portal is our network, uh, our platform, uh, engaging child welfare agencies here in upstate New York with uh, churches to meet the needs of children in crisis. Uh, so I just want to thank our sponsors, Trinuclear Corporation, Bishop Boundary Construction, and National Bank of Cooksaki. These businesses care about children and families in crisis, and they help us to do what we do with the Care Portal. So we're grateful for them. Be sure to follow us. Justice for Orphans has a Facebook and Instagram page. You can also find Sandra Flack on Facebook and Instagram. And I am grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today. And I'm thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.